Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audio books. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from, and they are waiting for you in a wide variety of genres. You can play them on just about any digital listening device that currently exists on this planet, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, you name it. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Telegraph Avenue, the new novel by Michael Chabon, or Mortality, the new book by the late, great Christopher Hitchens. Just about any book at Audible can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the free audio book, it helps the show. I get a few nickels. That's a nice thing to do. To download your free audio book, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is available on demand. This is a mutual exchange between parties. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Uh, What's going on right now? It is hot in Los Angeles. It is very warm here. Temperatures are rising into the triple digits. The sun is yellow. It is angry. It is without mercy. 
and the desert is aflame. Uh, I also finished a book earlier today. I finished reading one. Uh, it's a novel. I finally read Austerlitz by W.G. Sebald. Not sure if anybody out there has read that. Uh, it was, I think, hands down, one of the most depressing books I've ever read. It left me numb and quietly frightened. And in the hours after finishing it, uh, I have sat here in a quasi-catatonic state, pondering humanity's terrible fall and the horrors of industrial warfare. So it's been an, uh, an unusual day. It just has. Not a bad day, just a strange day, just a, kind of an off-kilter day, uh, part of which is attributable to the fact that I was up a lot last night. My daughter, my two-year-old kept waking up. I kept going back into her nursery. I was half asleep. I would pick her up. I would rock her. Uh, then I would get back into bed myself. And then just as I would almost fall back asleep, she would wake up again, and then the process would repeat itself. And then suddenly... It was morning, and it was bright outside, and the first thing I did was go climb a mountain to try to wake myself up, as I will uh, often do. And it's you know it's not really a mountain either; it's more like a hill, but it's mountain-esque. And so I went for a hike in the in the morning sun, and I listened on my iPhone to a lecture by Terence McKenna, uh, the late Terence McKenna, psychic voyager, philosopher, uh, shaman. Uh, I don't know what you call him. He sort of de like defies easy categorization. But uh, he's been on my mind lately. Uh, I had an email the other day with Tao Lin, uh, the author, and we were talking about Terrence McKenna and how interesting Terrence McKenna is and how unorthodox and so on. And uh, it then got me thinking about uh, people like Terrence McKenna and how uh, like marginalized or peripheralized they, they tend to be in our society. And uh, why is that? And is that appropriate? Uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, so I've been listening to some lectures lately. I've been trying to sort of digest his particular perspective. And uh, this morning, while I was climbing this hill, this mountain, in an almost dreamlike state of mind, uh, as the sun was rising up over the city, I heard this from Terrence McKenna. Calm, spreading understanding. Because make no mistake about it, as we close distance with the transcendental object at the end of time, there is going to be a lot of vibration accumulate on the superstructures of the social uh, airfoil. If the airfoil cannot be redesigned in flight as we approach this barrier, we will be ripped to pieces. This is, it, you know, H.G. Uh, Wells said in 1905, history is a race between education and catastrophe. And it is going to be a photo finish. You know, if... if so there you go. Uh, that is kind of how my day started, I guess you could say. It sort of set the tone. And then I came home and I read the end of Austerlitz, which is about a Jewish orphan who lost his entire family in the Holocaust. And then I tried to write. And now I'm sitting here in front of this microphone trying to transfer all of it into your brain. My guest today is Benjamin Wood. He hails from England, and he is the author of the debut novel, The Bellwether Revivals, available in the United States from Viking and from Simon & Schuster, I believe, over in England. The Bellwether Revivals was an official selection of the TNB Book Club, The Nervous Breakdown Book Club, and The Nervous Breakdown, once again, is my online culture magazine and literary community. If you would like to join the book club, it's a terrific deal, and it's a great way to support the cause. For only $9.99 a month, that's less than the cost of a book, 
You get a brand new title delivered to your door every 30 days. To sign up, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar, okay? This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So let's get to it, folks. Let's get to the main event. This here is my conversation with Benjamin Wood, the author of the Bellwether Revivals. And what I'm always joking about with friends of mine who work in like, uh, you know, different uh, lines of work, whether it's like the financial sector or some business or something, uh, I'm always like, listen, you know, this is not that hard for me as a writer because it's been like, you know, essentially like a great recession ever since I got out of college. <laughs> you know? um, I feel very, I feel very, feel very uh, you know, like very easily uh, adaptable to this sort of environment. And I think maybe that's why I, I don't see it out on the street is because A, I'm hardly ever go out on the street. Um, and, and B, because, yeah, I'm just used to that sort of feeling of uh, not really working for a living anyway. Just I just get to do what I sort of like to do. And uh, if I can keep the roof over my head somehow, then that's terrific. Yeah. So how how is it over there? I mean, I'm imagining it's probably similarly difficult to make a living as a writer of fiction in um, in England as it is here. I mean, do you feel any difference or, I mean, have you heard of any difference? Is it easier? Is it the same? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure really. I, I think the, for a long time, there was a lot of reticence from uh, publishers to really sort of go out and buy new fiction. So I think there was sort of a two or three year little, um, hiatus where it was it was very difficult to get new work out there and i think that that started to sort of change in the publishing industry here and i think probably in the states as well as you know a lot of debuts seem to have sold for a lot and you know generally advances seem to be getting you know higher again um but um i don't know a writer who uh, just lives off what they earn from writing at the moment so i mean i i taught um i've taught now for about six years so while i was writing um my novel i was teaching three days a week and you know writing basically thursday through sunday to get the get the work done um and i'm still teaching three days a week now um you know i, I i've sold this book and it's come out in different countries and that's been astounding but um you know, I think I'm in a fortunate position in the sense that what I wanted to do in writing was always just be able to keep writing. So if somebody paid me to be able to keep on doing that, I, I was happy. And, that, you know, the rest sort of is a bonus. So I think it's very difficult now to sort of get the you know, exposure. So 
it's great that there are you know podcasts like this and and the website that you guys run is is terrific um for for really getting uh giving authors the chance to really get their work out there and once it is out there you know once we start writing more and more books the the readership only grows and that only helps you make a living yeah well yeah one hopes you know and and it feels like because of all the different changes that have gone on in publishing and because of the shift that there's been um, you know, just like the contraction of review sections in newspapers. I don't know if that's happened as much in, in England as it has here, but, um, you know, so much of that has shifted online. There have been so many grassroots, uh, magazines that have formed online and communities that have formed online. And it just feels like there's this massive reformulation, uh, a lot of which is positive. And I guess I just had the sense, and I sort of continue to have the sense that it's still shaking itself out. And we're still kind of measuring consequences and trying to figure out what the real impact is. But I don't think, uh, I don't think it's, 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 def- it's just not my approach or I don't think it's healthy for me mentally as a writer to approach it pessimistically. Like, I think there's a, there's a lot of opportunity out there to find readers. It's just a matter of, um, you know, I guess focusing primarily on the work and then trying uh, in whatever ways you can to leverage the new technology to help yourself build a community around the work that you do, you know, and trying to find some sort of equilibrium between the two, which is a little bit tricky, you know, for me anyway. Um, I feel like I've sometimes gotten sucked too far into the, the digital side of things at the expense of actually sitting down and doing the writing work. So you have to have the discipline to, I, I think, maintain uh, the proper balance. Absolutely. I, I would agree with that. I mean, there are so many, um, you know, distractions, I think, for writers these days. It's, you know, one of the wonderful things about social media is that it gives you an immediate response to your book from readers themselves. And I think, you know, in days gone by, it would have been much more difficult for a writer to put a novel out and sort of hear immediately from, you know, 50 to 100 sort of readers via Goodreads or Facebook or whoever may have got your novel in proof or and to have all of these different responses to it sort of aggregating online and you knowing that you have access to that and wanting to see it sort of slowly aggregate and say, oh, what has this reader said about it today? That There's so much of that to contend with now. And after a while, you have to sort of come to a realization that you have to uh, accept that and value that. But at the same time, you have to shut yourself off from it because it will only drive you crazy. Yeah. I mean, so how do you do it? Like, what is your, what is your, uh, you know, your work process look like? Are you, are you on a computer? Are you writing longhand? Are you disconnecting from the internet? Do you have to sort of enforce that sort of, that kind of discipline on yourself or? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I've never really suffered with discipline. I mean, I'll always sit in the chair with the will to write. Um, and I'll feel incredibly guilty if I don't. So I, I'm lucky in that sense that I have that resolve but my process has changed um a lot i mean writing the bellwether revivals it was all completely written you know straight to the computer i mean i had a lot of notebook things that i would sketch little you know ideas scenes or some character developments into but that was very much a, a process where i couldn't write anything unless i sat at the computer um with this next book i've done a lot more writing longhand and i've got into this sort of regimen and routine which i found really important um just for my writing process mentally i think um to get into a a thing that you you do every day so at the moment i'm going out and walking into the sort of local um 
parade of uh, shops where there's a little park and I'll just go there with a notebook and a cup of coffee and sit down and I'll think I'll, it just really helps to clear my head of all of the ephemeral stuff, the emails you've got to respond to, the Twitter stuff, the stuff that comes to me from the university that I have to respond to. The walk there is just long enough that I can sort of get all of that out of my head by the time I sit down on the bench and I'm thinking then about the story I want to write. And I found that incredibly helpful and it was something I didn't do with the previous book. So what I found is that I think writers develop a certain habit and a certain process which is unique to them. But even that process is constantly evolving and you have to sort of be aware of your own process changing and being okay with it changing without it changing so much that it uh, prevents you from doing what you want to do. So you sit on a bench in a park and write? I sit on a bench in a park with a pencil um, and uh, just a, a notebook um, with sort of quite, um, it's sort of like architectural paper that is easy to erase from. And um, I will just, yeah, I'll, I'll write I'll try and write the scene if I can. If not, I'll I'll make a lot of notes for what I want characters to uh, do or say or become. So it, it won't be a fully realized scene, but it will be something which is, you know, stewing and formulating in my head. And I'll do that for maybe an hour, an hour and a half if it's a good day. And then I'll come back and I'll type up what I've got or I'll read through what I've got and try and put it down and, and work it through. And so far, that seems to be going okay. But um, yeah, I think I spent I spent a lot of time writing the Bellwether Revival sort of in the wrong direction. Um, I had a I had a, a whole idea for what I wanted the book to be about, but the set of characters were different, um, and ultimately they were wrong. I suppose looking back on it, and I sort of feel like I wasted a lot of time. Even though time is never really wasted in that stuff, but I I, I didn't get the novel going in the direction I wanted it to for about a year and a half. And then once I realized what it should be and what it could be, the writing sort of came within six, seven, eight months um, of, of, of sort of solidly sitting at the computer and, and just writing. Oh, that's interesting. And so like the, the outdoor period, which, uh, you know, I guess that's what I would call it, where you're sitting on the bench is almost like an outlining process. So you're, yeah. you're, you're sketching and then you go back into your – uh, your study or your office to to do the actual drawing. Yeah, I'm I'm going to start calling it that the outdoor period. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I imagine like what 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 happens when the weather gets bad? Then you're in a coffee shop or something, just out of the out of the house a little bit. This is England, so the weather's always bad. Um, <laughs> you take an umbrella with you, and and that's fine. But um, if it's absolutely you know pissing it down, then you just have to content yourself with sitting in a coffee shop or but the absolute ideal is to go into the into the park with the birds chirping and the uh, the grass there is always sort of newly cut and it's just a lovely pleasant environment i'm i'm tend to be a morning person sort of oh well a begrudging morning person in that i love the feeling of being up early and out early and that's when my thoughts germinate best but at the same time, I find it a struggle to get out of bed to 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 be up that early. Yeah, no, I love that. I'm I'm the same way. There's nothing like I like to get up just a little bit before the sun. Even like I love that feeling, uh, but it doesn't always happen. You know, it's, sometimes it's just a theory. 
Yeah, you're always chasing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. So um, what about uh, like, like the, the actual road to publication for you? Like, was it, can you talk a little bit about that? How much rejection did you have to deal with? Did you uh, have moments of doubt where you didn't think you were going to you know, be able to push through? Or did it happen uh, seamlessly and like an absolute uh, dream? <laughs> <laughs> um my my girlfriend always reminds me of, of i think it's michael jordan's phrase that overnight success was a long time coming um and uh i think that that's sort of how i look at my path to publication because i was a musician a sort of a singer songwriter for a lot of years so basically when i from when i was 17 until i was in my mid-20s i was chasing a record deal as a singer songwriter and got you know about as close as you could get i think without signing on the dotted line. Um, and I had to sort of get over the great disappointment of that not quite happening. Um, at the same time as I was discovering that what I wanted to do was write fiction, that the songs I was writing were actually just my way of writing lyrics so that I could tell stories and use language. And I got more and more into writing fiction and, and concentrating more on fiction. Uh, I did an MFA in Canada. I was really lucky um, because I got... Uh, I applied to get a Commonwealth scholarship, which I had no, um, <laughs> I, I just did not believe that I would get a Commonwealth scholarship. So I sort of sent the application in and one day the UPS truck arrived with the thing to say I'd got it. And it was amazing. And I went to Vancouver in Canada for a couple of years to study creative writing. Um, and while I was there, I wrote a novella, which was sort of more aimed at a slightly younger crowd, I guess sort of a crowd that's, between YA and um, adult fiction, I suppose, which is also about music, but about contemporary um, music. And wait, that, the, wait, the no, no, the novella was about music. It was about um, a, a, a female singer songwriter, um, and it it. I finished that when I was in Canada, and I came back. This would be two thousand and six, uh, and I sent that out, and it, and it was picked up by a, a quite a big agent in um london i was still living in northwest of england then um near liverpool um so that was all very exciting and you know this this was an agent who was known to get big advances and you know to really start the careers of it so i was you know giddy with <laughs> excitement that this might actually turn out okay and it was sent around and you know people in the industry responded very kindly towards it, but they, it was a hard sell for them. They didn't really know 
what to do with it. So, well, a, nove- uh, a novella is a hard sell. Period. Right. I mean, it's just not. If, if I feel like agents always want novels. A novella is probably better than a short story collection, and a short story collection is better than a poetry collection, just in terms of like the way they think yeah. business wise. <laughs> so I, you know, I was lucky that he he took it up and he, you know, he tried to sell it with passion, but it didn't. It didn't quite work out. So that was a, but that was a big sort of disappointment to get over having spent you know two and a half three years sort of working on, on that and coming back from canada to northern england and that was you know and i didn't really i sort of felt that i'd, I'd done all this work and it had taken me you know, so I, after that experience i had to pick myself up and realize well what do i want to do and what i want to do was keep on writing novels so i i did and i you know, i began to write what eventually became the bellwether revivals and by the time that was sent out, I, I got it to a, a different agent who I'd met, who was uh, Judith Murray, who's at Green and Heaton in London. And um, she's a very different kind of agent to the one I'd experienced before, who was more sort of business-oriented. And, and my agent um, that I have now is, is very much a book lover and really, you know, read the book and gave me comprehensive notes before it was sent out. So I think I was lucky finding her and, and for her to really uh, invest in in the book as 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 something that she wanted to take forward um and not just sort of try and sell and and if it didn't it didn't um so it took a while because it was it was in that little window i was talking about before where publishers were reticent to really buy new uh debut novels um so it took you know, a feral while it was sent out and it was, it was much longer than it is now as well. And, um, I had a lot of people return, you know, wanting it, some not. And it eventually, um, was taken up by Simon and Schuster. And I was really, really over the moon, um, with that, but it, it took about the good side of a year really for somebody to get back to me on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so t- talk about the moment where you found out that the book had sold, because especially with your your first, that's very exciting. I mean, it's always exciting, but it's I think the first time, especially just to break through. Like, where were you when you found out, and how did you find out? Well, it's funny because I was actually in my uh, I teach at Birkbeck College, which is part of the University of London, um, and I found out I have a little office there and. I'd sort of got to the point where I was expecting that it wasn't quite going to happen and I'd sort of resigned myself to it because I'd waited so long to to hear back. Um, And I heard my agent sort of called me as I was on my way to teach a class that evening. (laughs) And um, I just couldn't quite, couldn't quite believe that um, it was happening. It was sort of, I think I went out into the little uh, park green near the office and sort of just looked up at the sky and sort of said thank you to whoever I (laughs) Um, but it just yeah it just felt like an enormous weight of something had just (laughs) been lifted from me it was great excitement but also incredible relief (laughs) well yeah I mean you do all that work I mean over all those years and you put so much into a manuscript and and to face that, uh, to, to face the reality uh, that it might not happen is very difficult, very difficult, especially having done uh, a full novel. And, you know, I, I've talked to writers and I know writers who have had that happen multiple times where they get close and it doesn't happen and 
they find the strength to go back and write another book. But I think for every one of those, there are probably writers who go through the process and uh, get close or get denied and they don't, they don't come back. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's tough. So it's, it, it, you know, the, the idea that it's a relief uh, makes perfect sense. That feeling being almost uh, maybe more dominant than joy. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about your musical background, because this is uh, interesting to me. Uh, you know, like when you say you were a singer songwriter, were you playing the guitar and singing and, and were you by yourself on stage or were you part of a band or? I was, I was, so I grew up, um, in Merseyside, um, not, not Liverpool itself, but sort of on the fringes of, of Liverpool. And, uh, I guess, uh, there's still some of that Lennon and McCartney vibe around the place. And I'd always, um, you know, loved music. And I, I, I just one day, I think inspired by, some of my friends at school who were doing the same thing, I picked up a guitar and sort of taught myself as much as I could how to play. I think I got them to teach me a few chords. And then from there, I sort of learned how to play the guitar. And I immediately wanted to use music as some form of expression. I didn't, you know, I think most of my friends at school, school wanted to just play in a band and do cover songs of whoever was big at the time. And that, that kind of didn't really appeal to me. If I was going to play music, I wanted it to be, music that I'd created. So I, you know, I began writing songs when I was about 14 or 15. And for some reason, they all came out like belated uh, Vietnam protest songs or something. Um, Vietnam but, protest songs? I was 14. Yeah. I mean, that's that I, I had, I had, you know, quite lofty ambitions, I think, when I was 14. <laughs> The, and the war was so tough on you. I mean, my God, you know, like, I, I know it. I know what you, uh, I know what you mean though. When you're, uh, you know, when I was like an adolescent and you know, you, you can take on these sort of grandiose ideas about the kinds of statements you want to make artistically. That's so, so great. You know, there was, there was no subject that could not be broached, uh, <laughs> when, I, when I was 14, but you know, slowly I think I got better and my, my lyrical aptitude got more refined and mature. And um, by the time I was sort of 17, I had a management company and um, I was making demos that were interesting uh, labels in London. And I did a massive uh, showcase, as they call it, um, when I was 17 for a lot of record labels uh, who'd come to, uh, up from London to Liverpool to hear me and... Um, it was it was just me on stage, and I also had a, a group of musicians who were behind me and supported me um, now and then. But generally, it was just me on a stage with a guitar and a lot of open tunings, which would take five minutes to get the guitar into. Um, and yeah, I did that for you know a while and got pretty close. I I was brought you know down to London to perform for a room full of executives who you know sat there in suits in a very quiet room and weren't allowed to clap after you finished the song and <laughs> so I went through that whole um very strange experience I just wanted to write songs and, and write sort of meaningful songs really which were lyrically led and you know at the time it was again it, I think it was just the wrong place at the wrong time for me because music at that time was going through a funny phase of not really knowing what it wanted to do there were a lot of boy bands and there was Oasis, but there wasn't much room for anybody to sort of break through. So there was, again, there was that reluctance to, to really 
put money behind someone and it just didn't work out for me at the at the time um and this was before you know if, if i was a 17 18 year old now with you know the ability to record something on garage band and you know put my own record out there you know that's the kind of thing i would have been doing but i just sort of missed that little window i think um and i still i still write songs today i still perform when i can i'm in a band with um, my little brother who was seven when all of that was going on but now he's in his 20s <laughs> um so you know it's still something that i really love to do and it's a very different creative release and a creative process for me that gets me out of um the mode of writing sometimes when i need to yeah i mean i feel like if i could do any i mean if i could if i could play music and i feel like i hear a lot of artists say this not just writers but i mean it, music seems to be the quickest to the vein, the most powerful, uh, and obviously it figures into your novel. I mean, do you do you feel that way? I mean, e- even though you're now writing fiction and you're deriving great satisfaction from that, is there a power that writing lacks that music has, or do you just feel like it's different kinds of power that can be realized in equal but different ways? Uh, it's a tough one. I mean, I, I certainly feel that, as you said, music has some... Um, effect on us, an emotional effect on us, which is just so instant and immediate, and so you know, whelming as well. Um, that it's, yeah, I, I do see music as as having a more visceral effect on us than perhaps a cerebral one. Um, and I think that's what I went into writing the Bellwether Revival, sort of wanting to explore, because as a as a young songwriter. I would pick up a, a guitar and I would, you know, I'd, I'd want to sort of express this emotion and I'd find a chord or a run of notes or some line of melody in the vocal that would just, every time I would sing it, it would just make me well into tears for some reason. I I just did not know. It was just sort of pure emotional expression. Um, and I, I knew that I w- I'd always wanted to figure that out and write about what, that is so i started reading more and more about musical theory to see if anybody had really ever you know defined that fully um whether science had looked into it and and the more that i read about it you know into music aesthetics and and certain areas of music theory you know i got more and more interested in that side of it but i think that also writing fiction sometimes can do the same thing it's just not as immediate and it's harder to tap into um there was a part of the writing process of the bellwether revivals when everything was going very smoothly and i knew the story and i I felt i knew the characters so well that i could the writing was really flowing sort of towards the end and there's a part of the book which um i think i must uh, one evening i wrote about six to eight thousand words just in one sitting and on on that uh, that one evening, which is you know incredibly rare for me as an occurrence to write that amount in one sitting, um, it, it did feel as uh, I'm not sure what the word for it is, but it, it, it did feel um, as that I was being sort of impelled by something in the same way that I would um, when I picked up a guitar and struck upon a chord or, or a, some pattern of, of melody that I hadn't struck upon before. And, and it was, was, and this was toward the end of the book. This is toward the end of of, of the book. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure when it was. I think it was. 
I'm not quite sure when that was. I think it was a lot of um, a lot of the of the final the final section before the final section, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, but it, I mean, I'm just trying to like wrap my head around it logically. Like, I feel like and and trying to tie it to music because it, it's very difficult to articulate especially i feel like talking about music talking about songs because you sort of just have to listen to them and the writing process can be i think in some ways equally mysterious but you know just logically thinking about it uh, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree but when you get towards the end of a book uh, and you're, you've been working on it for a long time and you've been spending all this time with the characters and, and building this world it would make sense to me that if you were going to have this huge push and you were going to have this sort of uh, I mean, I don't even, is symphonic the right word? Uh, you know, this kind of like experience of everything coming together uh, and pouring out of you easily. It, it, it seems to make sense that that would happen towards the end. And, and I think I, I talk to writers or know writers who have a sense of sprinting at the end of the book when the end is, is at least visible and you've got, you know, a, a full sense of what you're up to. I mean, I, I would completely agree with that. It, it, it's as if, uh, it's as if, um, symphonic is a good word for it, but it's as if you have all of these parts which make up an orchestra, which is the novel. And, you know, you, you, you spend all this time sort of trying to make ev every one of them learn their parts and they're rehearsing their parts and they go through. And then all of a sudden they reach this point where everything is unified and everybody understands what it is that they are supposed to do and play within the novel. And it just clicks together and it allows a momentum that, you know, for most of the writing process is horribly elusive. Yeah, I was going to say, so that, that's like your glory day. What's an average day look like? <laughs> How many words are, or do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you work very slowly uh, well, somewhere in the middle or? With this, with this new book, I work slowly. Yeah. <laughs> with the, with the, with the Bell with the Revivals, I would, once I, once I found the point of understanding what the framework for the story was, who the characters were and where I wanted it to go, I, I sort of decided that I would write a thousand words a day, you know, over sort of three, four days a week. And I stuck pretty solidly to that. And, you know, sometimes I would write 200. I wouldn't be feeling well. I wouldn't put too much pressure on myself because at that time, you know, the only deadlines were my own. So um, I think I, I'm, I'm pretty good at keeping to a, a regimen and a meeting a deadline that I set, but I try not to put too much pressure on myself because there are days, you know, as, as you all know, when you try and you have, a, you wake up feeling great and you think, yes, I'm excited. And you sit down and for some reason it just doesn't, you can't think of the right word or the, so it's everything you write just feels wrong. And on those days, I think sometimes it's best to just go away and read a book or do something else than actually try and, you know, pull the tapeworm of the creative uh, uh, juices out of you. That's a nice visual, Ben. I really like that. <laughs> um, uh, do you feel like with this new book, because it's coming more slowly, that that's a, a result of, of having learned on the first one and wanting to get things uh, more correct, if that's a way of putting it, on the second one? Or do you feel like this is just the way that it's going because I, I ask that somewhat selfishly because I'm working on my second book as well. And I feel like I've slowed down as uh, I've slowed down considerably. And there's a part of me that just feels like there's no point in doing it unless I get it as close to exactly right as I possibly can. And if that means that, 
things have to move a little bit more slowly, then that's just the way it's going to have to be. <laughs> like, are you functioning from a similar motivation or, or perspective or is it different? I definitely am. Um, I think that with, with the book I'm working on now, um, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying not to waste time with it. Like I did with, with the first one in the sense that I had, the, I had the idea for what I wanted to write about. And I spent, you know, the good part of a year and a half sort of, I, I had thousands of words, but I, there was just something about it that just, and I knew it when I was writing, this just doesn't feel right. The story just doesn't fit. It's not doing what I wanted to do. You know, it's there. I read it back to myself and it seems, you know, it flows. It feels nice. Some of these characters are nice and interesting, but it's not, it doesn't have the punch that I wanted it to have. And it took sort of, um, in a way, I just sort of stumbled upon something really, which was um, the. I, I met somebody in Cambridge um, when I was living in Cambridge, um, who uh, worked teaching music um, at one of the college schools, which is where all the choral scholars are taught, and um, some of the organ scholars um, are taught. And he was telling me about how often these you know kids have to go into class and how many hours they have to practice a day and that just made something click in my head that thought ah that's they're the people that i need to be writing about um because it was a very different formulation um before that point and just just that one thing that i stumbled on just made the whole thing click um and what what worries me about writing the next book is is sort of continuing to write something which i know in my bones isn't right but sort of um continuing with it because i feel i have to because i have a deadline because you know all of that and what i want to do is make sure that i have i know that i have the right character and the right voices before i even get too far into the momentum of the book so do you have do you have an externally imposed deadline or is it self-imposed no i do because i i I sold um two more books to my uk publisher um so i have deadlines which you know they're, they're very kind to me and they're saying you know don't worry about it will but you know after, after a while a publisher will come knocking on your door um so they are they are you know fairly flexible deadlines but it's still something that i never have had to sort of deal with before which is this idea of you know having to condense your creative output into a set window well you know it, it brings up an interesting question because it's like you don't want to rush the process and get it wrong, you know, just, in, you know, at the expense of trying to get it, uh, in on time, you know, but at the same time, I think sometimes you can give yourself too much leash, you know, and you can give yourself, uh, all this time to try to get the process right. And it, you know, you, you, I don't know if lazy is necessarily the right word in every instance, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's trying to strike a balance. It's tough to know. And it's also tough to know, I think when something's done, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling with that. It's like, when do you step away? How do you know when it's right? Like it's, it seems like just a, an intuitive process that you have to eventually trust, or you just have to wear yourself out and finally you give up. <laughs> Absolutely. I, but I, I, it is, it is a fine balance between listening to that gut feeling that says this isn't quite right yet. And the one that just is constantly doubtful of everything you'll ever commit to paper because you can't really listen too much to the latter voice because it will stymie every possible 
thing you want to write, but you equally can't ignore the first voice. So it's all about, um, in a way, hearing the right voice through the cacophony. Yeah. And then what about like early readers? Like when, you, when you're working on a manuscript, are you sharing it with anyone in process or do you feel like you have to get it to a certain point and then you share it with your agent or do you share it with certain friends or writer colleagues before you share it with your agent? Like how do you handle that part of it? I, I don't help myself with that, Brad, um, because I'm, I'm phenomenally secretive about anything I'm working on. Like, I won't write a greetings card if somebody's looking over my shoulder. That's kind of how... <laughs> I, and so I, I need to have, a, you know, at least half of it done. Or ideally, I need the whole a full draft done before I will give it to anyone to read. Um, because I just sort of feel like if I send that out there, and people kind of you get the response, which is sort of, eh, it's okay. Then it will it will stop me from completing the rest of it. Um, Whereas if I have a full draft and you send it out and people say, well, if it's got problems, then I have something that I can fix and know how to rearrange and go back into. And what uh, I fear most is the the feedback that sort of stops you from actually finishing something. Yeah, no, I mean, I I can even do you one better. I'm exactly the same way. Like I I don't share anything until I feel like it's presentable Uh, and, and, and a complete draft, you know, ideally. Uh, but even, even, uh, to go, you know, to go one further earlier, when you were talking about the, the outdoor period where you're sitting on the bench, all I could think about is like, well, what if someone sits next to you on the bench? Like, you know, like, what do you do then? Like, are you, does that affect your process at all? If all, you know, you've got this bench to yourself, you're in this perfect idyllic park, it's a beautiful morning. And then somebody comes by and sits down and they're talking on their phone. I mean, do you get up and switch benches or... (laughs) mornings where that very thing has happened like some some you know poor perfectly well-intentioned you know young mother has wheeled her you know uh (laughs) her stroller into the park and sat down to just talk to her baby and that's it i can't that's broken my zone of concentration and i have to go (laughs) and i hear of that happening but i but i have found a particularly uh sweet local spot where it's it's beautiful but um people tend to sort of pass by it for some reason. So yeah, it's well, working out so far. I won't, I won't ask you to describe exactly where it is. I wouldn't want to ruin, I wouldn't want to ruin your spot. It's like the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You mean, you mean like Alex Garland, it's uh, the secret beach. Yeah. Um, okay. So well, let's talk a little bit more about your childhood. I'm curious to know about your family and you know, you said earlier that your little brother is a musician as well. So I can imagine, you know, if he was like seven or eight years old when you were going through all of your uh, auditioning process and, and near misses with the record labels and whatnot, that that must have had an impression on him and set him on his road. But uh, it sounds like you come from an artistic family. Um, yeah, I, I, I do in some respects. I mean, my mother is and always was, you know, very creative and she was um married um to a musician before she met my father as well so i uh i've always sort of had that musical um gene i suppose that and she's she's an artist herself so uh, what kind she, of like a, a fine artist a painter but she she she's a painter but i mean for a long time she was a a nurse um so she's a retired nurse and now she she's a um she does paintings and um but one of the things I think I carried from my childhood most into 
um, my novel was the fact that um, I grew up for a short time in a nursing home when I was very young. So I was the the nursing home it's in the novel in the novel um, Cedarbrook is very much based on my uh, it sort of shaped around my memories of of that time of being around so many elderly people and the sort of the feeling that I try to evoke of of that place is is my attempt to sort of recreate that time in my uh, childhood, I suppose. So what necessitated this, that you're living in a nursing home? Well, my mum was a, a registered nurse who um, qualified in London, and, and she just decided that she you know, wanted to work for herself. So um, she and my dad bought a, an old house and renovated it and turned it, um, this is in northern England, um, into a residential care home um, where my mum was the matron and she did pretty much everything in the place. She looked after the residences with a small staff and, you know, she was even cooking dinners and things. And we lived on the t- very top floor of the residential home for about four or five, maybe even six years. I can't quite remember. Oh, wow. Okay. So was it was it uh, scary as a child? Because I, my grandmother was in a nursing home and it was not always a pleasant place to be. In fact, when I was in high school... What was it? it was, I was like getting confirmed for church or something. I was like, I was raised Catholic and I think we had to do some sort of community service. And I remember having to work at a nursing home and, uh, I, you know, it, it can be a little bit, uh, freaky. I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to, you know, I don't want to sound ageist and I don't want to obviously, um, be bashing on old people or sick people, but, you know, especially when you're young, uh, to be around that can be a little bit uh, disconcerting. Like, did you have experiences that really shook you when you were little? No, I mean, I think I, my experience of that was was happy because I think I was of an age. I think I was about six, maybe seven, um, when when I was there, and um, it, I was sort of of an age where I didn't really think about anything other than the fact that I just had this sort of. I was surrounded by sort of extra grandparents, and sometimes their family would come in and visit them. But generally, you know, we would also congregate around Christmas time. And my mum, I think, tried to keep me and my older brother um, in sort of involved in things. So we were always, you know, around on the ground floor, around the elderly people there. We we would play football out in the garden and they would come out and, and watch us sometimes. And it was, it was a nice sort of feeling, a sort of, on the one hand, we got a lot from having them around us and they got a lot from, um, having sort of young kids around the place. Um, and I think we had enough sort of separation from what was going on because we lived right on the top floor and the rest of it was on on the lower floors that we could get away from it. But equally, you know, there were a lot of elderly residents who used to give us, you know, extra pocket money so we could go down to the shop and buy more things. And uh, so we, we found it a tremendous boon <laughs> at, that, at that age. But I think when I got slightly older, um, my mum then owned a nursing agency and i would go into sometimes to um help her in, in other nursing homes which she didn't run you know and they were very different environments they were much more the sort of classic um downtrodden you know um old old people you know drooling in chairs all day um and not really seeing too much of the light um and that they were quite depressing experiences but the, the place that my mum ran was sort of a it was almost like if Disney ran a nursing home, that's what it would be like. I was going to say, it sounds fantastic compared to the ones I've seen. You know, like how obviously these people weren't like deathly ill who were in the nursing home. They were just old and needed a little bit of help. 
Yeah, exactly. They, I mean, it, it was, there was, they were just, it was, it was a retirement home, but some of them, you know, obviously needed more treatment. And you know, it was, it was, it was odd because, you know, there were, there were at least two residents um, there that as kids we got quite close to, you know, um, and, you know, one day we'd come back from school and they weren't there anymore. And it would just be, you know, the chair where they used to sit would be empty. And I think, you know, my mum would just sort of explain to us why they weren't there. And it, in a way, it was kind of grounding um, experience for a, for a kid to sort of be around that. And I'm aware that as I'm saying this, I sort of sound like Benjamin Button. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, no, but, you know, I think there's some truth to that. You know, I think that, uh, in Western culture, I mean, I know this is the case in the, in the States, like we tend to hide our dead. We tend to, um, you know, find ways to avoid confronting the fact that we get older and that we eventually die. And, uh, I don't think that's necessarily healthy. And I'm not saying that you have to, you know, take your kid to the graveyard every day and, and, you know, hammer it that hard. But I think there's something healthy about, uh, having some degree of confrontation with it, you know, and if it's going to come eventually anyway, you know, and it comes at different times to different people, but, um, you know, do you, do you feel that it had like a, any kind of, I mean, you said it grounded you. So obviously it had some kind of positive impact. Yeah, but I think what it, I think it's, it's, it's equally important for young people to be around elderly people as well. I mean, that's, that's our future, right? So, you know, you have to sort of, you have to see what it is that, um, elderly people are about and what they what they respond to and what they um, enjoy and you know and the, the kind of you know life that you know, it makes you think of the kind of life that you would want for yourself when you were old I think even when you're that young well it's that and then we also you know like I think it goes hand in hand with what I was just saying about hiding old age and hiding death from ourselves but uh, there's also like this strange like almost uh, fetishistic thing that uh we have when it comes to youth and trying to preserve youth and trying you know there's there's all this appreciation for youth but not nearly a, enough appreciation for uh, the old and people who have made it to the end like you, you would you know logically speaking you would think that we would have uh more respect for somebody who's had a full life uh, of experience and that we would you know appreciate that more and turn to them more and uh you know i wish i wish that it were more that way but it doesn't seem to be you know in most cases i would i would echo that sentiment Is it, you know it's strange i think there are some cultures you know i want to say i was reading about this there are some cultures where like the old are you know revered like you think of i think of like old native american culture and like you know the older you got like the, the more stature you had and it seems to be the reverse uh in a lot of like uh western it, culture it does um so what about your dad? If your mom was a nurse, was you, what was your dad doing? Uh, my, my dad was, uh, he, he ran sort of the, the, the business side of it. So he, he was a, a, a bank manager um, and he, he was the, um, f the sort of financial side of the business at that time while my mom was doing all of the um, legwork, I suppose. And you were in your room, like you and your brothers were in, in your respective rooms uh, becoming uh, like artists and musicians. Like what, what, what did your folks think about all this? I think I think at that age we were just in our rooms, you know, with our little um, pool table and our, <laughs> our He-Man figurines. <laughs> but I mean, as you got older and as you started to come to the arts, I mean, like what age were you when you started to when you got your first guitar? You know what I'm saying? Like when did that happen? I mean, I was I was lucky in the sense that 
I had a very supportive um, family and I always have and, and still do. Um, but, you know, I, I reached the stage where I was, when I was, I finished my GCSEs, as we call it. So I was about 16 and I went and I left um, the school I was at to go to a different school to do my A-levels, which is the, the qualification you do before you go off to university. And I sort of got halfway through those um i was studying english um and getting good grades and the people wanted me to the teachers there wanted me to apply to oxford and cambridge at the time and i was thinking about that but at the same time i could think of nothing worse when i was 18 than than to do that nowadays i would i would actually quite like it um but i reached a point where i got very um yeah i i realized that it wasn't really the life that i wanted to have i really i lost all um, I was I was doing a lot of writing of stories in English class, and uh, I would reach a point where the the teacher would would start you know telling me, well, you're not allowed to write stories anymore. You have to you know write more essays. And I you know I would I, I was just such a creative spirit. I think at that age that I kind of railed against that. Um, but I was I was lucky that you know I, I was allowed to sort of drop my A-levels and leave school really at that time and, and go and pursue music sort of full time as it were. Um, and you know, that was quite a, a brave and bold thing I think for my mother to allow me to do. Yeah. That's, I mean, not all parents are that supportive. And what about educationally? Like did, once the music thing sort of, uh, you know, started to fade or you started to realize that you were going to head in another direction, like what did you do educationally then? Or, or did you already say? Yeah, well, I, I was continuing with music for a while, and I, I did. Um, I went back to um, college, um, as we call it, which is sort of like a. It's like a college for sixteen to nineteen year olds, um, uh, and I did an art um, qualification, which is sort of equivalent to the A level qualification, which allowed me to sort of be creative in the daytime whilst I was also doing music. And I finished that in two years. And a lot of the people, because I'd sort of been out of education for a while, were much younger than me. So I, I finished that. And it was a qualification which allowed me to then apply to university. So I thought, well, you know, I think I'll do that. And one of the courses I saw at a local university at Central Lancashire um, was this incredible. It was like a course that was designed for me. It was, med- it was called Media Practice, which involved photography, screenwriting, and filmmaking. So... <laughs> I thought, okay, that sounds like something I'd like to do. And I got into that course. Um, I studied photography and the other things which I really enjoyed, but I, you know, doing screenwriting just sort of seemed to come quite naturally to me. And I went through that degree in about three years and got very good marks, which then enabled me to apply for the Commonwealth Scholarship to go and do my MFA in creative writing um, in Canada. But as part of my undergraduate degree, I, I asked them if I could write a novel. That's how creative I, I kind of was. I had this kind of effusively creative personality. So wait, you asked them if you could, if you could write a novel in a screenwriting course? Did I asked, and they created a, this module for me called Open Practice, which allowed me to write a novel. Um, so I wrote a feature-length screenplay and a novel in the final year of my undergraduate degree, Jeez. which, yeah, I'm not sure I could even do that. <laughs> I could do that now, really. And wh- uh, how, was the novel any good? Uh, no, it was largely terrible. <laughs> but what it what it did allow me to do was was realize that I could sustain a long piece of writing, you know. And it was a, it was it was about seventy thousand words, so you know, uh, and it had three 
narrative strands to it. And it was, you know, mostly terrible, I would say, and set in a kind of, all, the, all of the fiction that I was inspired by then and probably still am was American fiction. So I tended to try and find ways that I could write about, write in an American voice without coming across as completely inauthentic. So I would create alternative American realities which existed uh, in order to allow and that's what that novel i think was <laughs> so you would <laughs> say again you wouldn't want to read it <laughs> <laughs> it's buried somewhere in a drawer i take it or have you have you disposed of it entirely it, it exists somewhere on some you know floppy disk <laughs> right 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 so uh you know obviously you're working on the next book right now and you're living in london and you're teaching um, you know, beyond that, like, do you have a sense of where you're headed? Uh, are you, are you just taking it one? I mean, you're going to write this book and then another because you're contractually obligated, correct? You've yes. got, you've got a publisher for two more books. I do. So I'm taking it one, one book at a time, really. I mean, the, the aim, um, as, as I'm sure, you know, you and every other author you interview says is to get better with every book that you write and, uh, ideally more successful with every book you write. Um, so that, that's really what I'm doing. But, you know, I, I got into this, as, as I said, I was a, an effusive creative spirit as a kid. And just the thought that I could, you know, be here now with the chance to write a book and have it come out across the world and then to be able to write two more after that. Um, just, just having that knowledge that I can write this and it's going to come out is just really in one way it's pleasure, but mostly it's really liberating and it's, it, it feels gratifying, you know, to, to know that. So I'm, I'm just enjoying that for the moment and kind of getting used to the feeling of having had a book come out in the world. Really. I'm still getting used to that. Yeah. Well, I congratulate you and it's been really fun uh, to get a chance to talk and to get a chance to feature this book in the, in the TMV book club. Uh, and so on. And I wish you all the best uh, on the slow process of uh, writing the next one. Thank you very much, Brad. It's been great talking to you. And I, I'm glad that I now have a term for my outdoor period. <laughs> all right, Ben. Take care. Bye, Brad. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's Benjamin Wood. Go get the Bellwether Revivals. It is available in the States from Viking. It is available in the UK from Simon & Schuster. You can find Ben on the web at benjamin-wood.com, and he's on the Twitter at bwoodauthor. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. And, hey, if you like the program and you want to throw down a few bucks to help support the cause, you can do that at otherpeoplepod.com by clicking on Donate in the right sidebar. The show has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. If you would like to read my personal tweeting, the show has a Facebook presence, and if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And that's pretty much it. I'm done for the day. I'm going to go enjoy a beverage, I believe. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to watch a ball game. Is that what people do? I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do very much, though. Uh, I need to sleep. That's what I need to do. Uh, I would pay $500 for 10 hours of uninterrupted sleep. I would pay cash. For that sort of thing. Please remember that Plato died at age 80 or 81 while attending a wedding and that Leslie Fiedler once accused Jack Kerouac of, quote, an ecstatic schoolgirl anti-style. Uh, all right, guys. Thanks for listening. As always, I appreciate it. Have a good day. Have a good night. Uh, try to keep at the forefront of your mind the notion that this is all very strange. Try to be uh, a shaman 
if you can. I feel like the world needs more shamans. I feel like there might be a shaman shortage. I feel like shaman uh, needs to be an actual job. I feel like there needs to be a head shaman, uh, like there's a head surgeon general. You know what I'm saying? I think there needs to be a shaman general, the shaman general of America. Is that a good idea?